0: This soldier's got the killer instinct, which is right. But he's forgotten that full clip in his rifle, which is wrong. There's a time for the bayonet and a time for a bullet. When you've got your enemy trapped in a dugout, don't rush in after him. That's what they're waiting for. Toss in a grenade and let them divide it. Remember this. No army ever won a battle without getting its hands dirty and bloody. Okay, I think you get the, the picture. Is
1: that the film? How did you and your men react after you saw this? Well, I saw it many times, you know. We were so brainwashed. We was trained just like a dog. You know, you throw the ball and you go get it, regardless of where the hell it went. I never talked to anybody in civilian life that ever saw that film. This is the first I ever seen in the last 70
0: years. Thank you very much, Warren. Thank you for joining us on Longest War. On this episode, we have D-Day veteran Warren Goss. Warren, thanks so much for sitting down doing this with us. We really appreciate you driving all the way out here on your motorcycle at 92. I guess we'll start from the beginning. How old were you, Pearl Harbor happened? Sixteen is how old I was at that time. You were sixteen, and how yeah. old were you when you enlisted, or were you drafted? Nineteen.
1: I was drafted. I wanted to enlist, but my mother had us three boys
0: in there, and she sort of kept me around to work in a chicken farm, so she wouldn't let you go until Uncle Sam made you yeah, go. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so you were drafted, and you were nineteen. I was nineteen.
1: But I'll tell you, when I was sixteen in a bomb Pearl Harbor, I went into what they called the Pennsylvania Auxiliary. And now the Pennsylvania Auxiliary was trained by the Army. It was just like infantry training. I don't know if you know anything about Allison Park. Mm-hmm. But we uh, trained in the field up there, and we blew up the Allison Park tower when that tower was up there with those little puff balls, you know. And another maneuver was uh, Westinghouse Bridge. And then we would have different maneuvers with the uh, arm bands to see if we can sneak through the, the enemy, you know, through mm-hmm. red... Bands and white bands or blue bands, you know. And we had a lot of training. We had our training in combat. We trained with O3s. We had a combat uh, defense, you know, how to, they called it judo at that time. And I went through that. I was in that for maybe two years.
0: Did that that help prepare you for basic training? Oh, yeah, that was good training. We really tough, and they had. uh, So you could tell the difference between the boys that had gone through that and everybody else when you get to basic training. When I got to basic
1: training, I just about knew it all. <laughs> I did. That's so the drill
0: the tr- sergeants took it easy on you? No. <laughs> no? no? <laughs> How long after you left training until you went overseas?
1: When I was drafted into the Army, they sent me to Thin Town Gap. I was up there for about three days, and they put us all in the trucks, took us out to the Chesapeake Bay. we got in these big boats, big row boats. You know and we was all rowing out there then a ship came or some kind of powerboat came hooked us up and dragged us out to an island and we invaded and it stormed the beach of that island it was a picnic actually a th- funny thing you know training that was the starter of it and i spent four weeks in the island out there in chesapeake bay someplace and there i learned uh, more combat i learned uh, about uh, Forty miller anti tank guns, and I'm glad I learned that because I did use that in the service a little bit. What year was this? Forty three. So this was a year before D Day. Yeah, and then after that, I they gave me a, a pass to go home. Uh, I had about a week at home, you know. And then they sent me up to I don't know where the heck it was in Pennsylvania, some type place, Shenango, Pennsylvania. They had a camp up there. It's the first time I seen German prisoners. And they were walking around free. And I didn't uh, mind that. And I wasn't there very long at that time. It was pretty cold, I remember the snow flying. And they put us on a train, took us right through Pittsburgh, up to Buffalo, New York. I get up to Buffalo, and they de-loused us. They took all our clothes off. And uh, then they give me a haircut. And I remember that guy whispered in my ear, he says, You got a dirty head. He says, I wash it for fifty cents. I said, okay. I like my hair dirty, just leave it the way it is. <laughs> Hell, I never had no money when I was a kid. Then we got on a it put us in a boat, gave us equipment, our guns and everything, and went down the Hudson River. I guess it was the Hudson, he that the Hudson comes from, from New York? Yeah, it goes right into New York. And the ice was scraping the boats and uh we walked up the ramp and we walked up the ramp. There was guys with guns there guarding it, you know. And I stopped look around and he yelled at me, Get moving, get moving, you know. And uh, I I was a little bit rebellious all the time and I told him, I said it's our I'm going over to get my butt blowed off, not you, buddy. And that's in the fourth division, see. So we goes over there, took I think it was fourteen days in Aquitania. Now the Aquitania it was the third largest cruise ship at that time that the world had. It was a British ship, and we went over and zigzagged, clean up the Iceland, back down, and finally ended up in Glasgow, Scotland. And I walked down the ramps, we got on there, and we're standing on a big docks out there, and uh, I says to one of the guys, I says, boy, you are now in England. I didn't even know where Scotland was, you know. Some woman in uniform, she walks up to me and she says, you are not in England, you are in Scotland. Real demanding, see. So they rounded us up and put us in these Quonset huts for the night. And you know, that's where I saw my first air raid. The sirens were going and they was hustling everybody into these shelters. And I didn't go in the shelter. I wanted to see what an air raid was like. So I just stayed outside and I laid in the bushes someplace. I don't know where the heck it was, a road or something. And I watched the air raid. It was at night. It was way down south, no ways close to us. I can see the searchlights going, and I can hear the bombs going off, you know, the Germans were bombing. And I didn't think nothing of it. I didn't think, well, this ain't so bad. And they put us on a train, took us way through, right down through the heart of England, through London. I remember looking out the wind at London. That's all I ever seen in London. And I got down there, way in the southern part of England. We was right across the bay from Thalmouth, England. I think that was called Thalmouth, England. And I served there for almost a whole year, training for one job. And that's where they asked for volunteers to go in the Special Brigade. A couple of us guys did. And I stuck it out, and I made it good, too. And we trained, I mean, We was, they trained us hard. They really, you weren't allowed to walk. I spent all that time over there. I had one pass to go to town. I had to get into the Higgins boat, would ride across the channel into Falmouth, England. And the only thing I remember is a beer garden and a spam sandwich or something like that. That's all you could get. It was dark, no lights, you know. And that's the only time, I was never in an English home never got to go to these dances that i see on television never seen it in a whole year we didn't even get much mail there either i don't know why they held it back but they did i think and then we was on maneuvers there every time we'd go out on maneuvers we'd hit the beach someplace this one maneuver was called operation tiger we was out there i don't know about april 27th it was it was getting ready and, and at that time they even gave us live ammunition we knew something was getting close because we used a lot of ammunition it was just out of wooden bullets we were out there and the german torpedo boats got us they came out of cherbourg i didn't know that though where they came from but i learned that after i got home and when i read the story that the birds come out of uh, torpedo boats, and they sunk about two of our ships we lost a lot of guys in the 4th Division, a lot of guys from the Special Brigade. Three outfits in that. It was a 4th Division, and a Special Brigade, and the Navy. And another bunch of that, they lost almost 800 men drowned in those ships when they, when they hit the water. They had all their packs on, the life belt on, and they turned upside down because the top was heavy and the bottom was light. They couldn't get out of them. I could still see them floating in the water, I'll tell you, that at that time, it's the first time i ever seen guys get killed, you know. I've seen guys get hurt on maneuvers. I guess there's a 10% people would get hurt, or, and then when the paratroopers jumped, we watched them and over there jumping, and and they, they'd they always come back with a sprained ankles or something. And they put us in a camp when we got back, and we were not allowed to talk about it amongst ourselves. I got a newspaper clipping about that. There was a woman. The clip is what the newspaper is. It's out of an English paper. And I picked this up at a reunion. And she was delivering donuts to the boys, see. And a guy came by and the truck was hitching a ride off to pick her up. So she picked them up and took him to where she was going. And he stopped and he says, I have to unload here. You have to get out. She get out of the truck and she watched them pull up. And she stood around and watched. And here they were unloading bodies that was uh from that torpedo ship see that's another story and uh it's hard to remember just exactly how it went then after we got into that camp and we get on the boats they shipped us on the boat i was on a bus they put us on some kind of bus and the bus couldn't make the hill and we had to get out and help push the bus it was run by steam engine they had a furnace on the back see so we did get there, and uh, they loaded us on a ship. I think I was on that ship for three days, just laying there waiting around, you know. Then when the day come, we took off and went across. And I can I never forget that. That was a lot, a lot of ships and a lot of airplanes going over, I seen. It was dark, but I can still see them. And uh, when we got over there, got close enough, and we climbed down these rope ladders. There's big nets they had aside to get in the Higgins boat. we get on the Higgins boat and they just circled around and circled around until they had enough and then we all lined up you know, across there and then we went in. We couldn't see the Germans, but they could see us. We couldn't even see land. And we finally got in there. You know, they train you for a lot of things. Everything that could happen, they think they trained you for. But there's a lot of things they can't train you for. You don't think you're going to see a Higgins boat disappear, get a direct hit or something, and the whole damn thing blow up. And you don't know that so many guys are going to be dead floating in the water. They dropped their ramp. A couple guys in the ramp never made it off, and I went over the side of the boat. I hit the water. It was up to my chest. And I held my rifle up. And I just kept, kept going and going and got less and less and pretty soon. And then I got into the beach. Some of the guys would just, they just lay at the water tide and just lay there. They wouldn't move. As the tide would come up, the tide start rising a little bit. They'd ride in with the tide. That took a long time, but the rest of the guys had rushed the beach. I got into these obstacles they had for the ships to blow up because they thought it would be at high tide. And we went in at low tide. I think we had to run almost 200 yards or longer. I was laying behind one of these obstacles and the machine gun is shooting. I thought he was shooting at me, but I looked up and he was shooting at that obstacle, them iron crosses they had. And there was a mine tied to that thing. And that was to blow up the ships. Well, he was trying to hit that. And if he did, that would make a big damage. My job was in a brigade. It was a special brigade of engineers. I was not an engineer. I was, I was just qualified for a rifleman. When I was in England training with that outfit, they gave you all kind of training, parachute training, you know, water training. I never had much water training because they had frogmen. They had paratroopers that would jump in behind the lines and bring out messages. I didn't know that, but they did it. It was a big outfit and I didn't even know it. And my job was as a rifleman, just lay down covering fire for the guys to shoot out those bandoliers and blow up the mines that was in the field so they could get the tanks in there. I know there was more than 100 tanks coming in and only one made it. They all sunk, the guys were drowning in them. Well, so I made it to the wall. I guess by that time it was pretty much daylight. I don't know how much time I spent on the beach. I'd say maybe an hour or two trying to get in there. And there was a little concrete wall there. I have a picture of that concrete wall. I I went over the wall, and I hit that swamp that Hitler had that whole land swamped. And a lot of paratroopers landed in that swamp, too.
0: They flooded it, so when the guys landed, a lot of them drowned in it, right? At high tide, it would flood. I made it along the edge of the swamp. You got it into the hedgerows a little bit that
1: day. And I supposed to, everything the brigade did seemed to be attached to the 4th Division. And I find that really strange. Wherever the 4th Division went, seemed like some of our brigade was there. Some of the riflemen were there anyway. This was Utah Beach, right? Right. It's all on Utah Beach. And I know Utah Beach was easy compared to Omaha Beach because if those officers had any sense and they find out... They should have sent more of the troops down to Utah and took them from the flank. But So anyway, I got up to, uh, I was supposed to get to St. Gleese to help relieve the paratroopers. 4th Division, I think, was supposed to do that too. Well, I made it to a town of St. Marie-de-Mont. But that time was late afternoon and I seen, a, I seen, I think, I don't know what time it was. But anyway, I seen a second wave of paratroopers coming in. From left to right, all I can see was parachutes. It scared me half to death. I thought the Germans were coming back. I really did I often dream about that. There was one guy in that parachute, came down really late. And I was by a cemetery there. And he was coming down, and I was watching him coming down. And I didn't see any Germans shooting at him, though. Maybe somebody did. I don't know. But anyway, he... Uh, was cutting his harness loose on the way down. And when he dropped to the ground, he, he was about, I'd say, 10 feet away from me. And he just left the chute go. And I hollered at him. And he come over and got in a ditch with me. you know. And I asked him, I says, what took you so long to get out of that plane? He said, oh, that damn pilot, he got scared. He was a jump sergeant. He was the last one out. He said, he backed that plane around. He said, I rolled clean back to the tail. And I had to crawl on my hands and knees to get back out of it. And that's why he was late, he missed his whole squad. So I, I don't know, he stayed there with me for maybe a half hour, 20 minutes. He left and went to hunt his guys. And I think I went back to the beach, somebody sent me back to pick up some ammo or something. And I get back to the beach, I get in a foxhole, because they were still shelling it. And you know, an air an P-51 came over, he dove down, He did a barrel roll, a victory roll, called and went up. And the Americans and the Navy, everybody was shooting at this guy. They thought he was a German. And he was way up there. I can see uh, all those tracer bullets around him. And then in between each tracer, there's four you can't see. He was really in a tight spot. Well, he bailed out. That airplane was coming down, and I'll never forget that as long as I live. I even built a model, at 51. (laughs) He came down, and he hit the ground where I was. I bounced clean out of that hole when he hit. He wasn't too far away from me, pretty close. I was on my hands and knees, and I scooted as fast as I could into another hole with another guy in there. And we just laid in that hole until all those 50 calibers quit going off, you know. He dug a crater there. And that's when I started smoking, right there. That was your first cigarette? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I never smoked or drank or nothing. I still don't. And uh, that's when I started smoking. Then there was an ammunition dump over there. I went in to get some cartons of shells, ammo. was for the M1s, I guess. And we wanted a box of hand grenades, too. I did get them, and I got in a Jeep. They was taking me up, you know. And they were shelling that ammo dump they had there. The boats was just dumping it off and the ducks were driving it in and dumping it off. It wasn't even stacked nice. Everybody was afraid to go in there because if they ever shell hit that, it would be a big explosion. So we did it though. Some guy knew where everything was. He told us where to get it. Then, then another time when I went back to the beach in the same day, I saw all these guys laying dead. All the thing I could see was their boots. You know, they had blankets, so they had the tents up. The nurses were there. There was wounded guys laying all over the place. The guys were, even from our brigade in the 4th Division, they were there, and they were, they were in shock, you know, and they were wounded. And they had a bale of blankets there. I went over to cut the bale off, you know, and get these guys some blankets, and some guy come over and says, you ain't allowed to take them blankets. But I took them and covered up two guys with them anyway. That night... When I got back to St. Marie-Eglise, I spent my first night over there in a ditch. <laughs> That's right, I slept in a ditch over there in St. Marie-Eglise. Then the things seemed to get a little organized, and we fought through there, and I was running patrols. I don't know why they sent me on patrols, and patrols really didn't bother me that much. I was on one patrol, there was three of us went out, and they just... We run patrols for three things, to find out locations of where they were digging in another reason just to find out how much manpower they had we'd try to draw a fire another reason made to pick up a prisoner well we got lost or some damn thing and the germans were getting pretty close they had a patrol out too i guess run into this farmyard and two girls come out and i can even remember their names i'll never forget them simone phillips and mary suzeff and they took us in a barn put us in some place in that barn she says and I knew, she she called them the Bosch, the Bosch or some damn. I don't know what they called it. Anyway, we stayed there. Next morning she came by and she said it's okay, you can go now. So I don't know. A couple days went by, and I got in a chow camp someplace and I stole a lot of food as much as I could get and took it down and gave it to them. I remember that. We'd run all them patrols and we fought all the way. It wasn't too bad going to Cherbourg. And we got to Cherbourg. I can remember laying on the hill and watching the planes come over. They'd come over and they'd drop the bombs. They'd go out to the ocean again and they'd come back and drop the second load, and then go back to England. And then we took Cherbourg. Really, the Fourth Division had a lot to do with that. I think our brigade didn't have as much to do with that. Now we come to that big pillbox on the hill that we were told to take. And when we was fighting for Cherbourg, we decided. They decided to bypass it, not sacrifice that many guys. So now we gotta go back to take it. And nobody wanted to do it. because They had machine guns placed in the hill and everything, you know. I don't know what squad did it, but I didn't do it. They went back and took that thing and they found out it was just about a piece of cake. Because those Germans that were in there, they must have, they must have been Italian Germans, you <laughs> know? Because they gave up pretty easy. They were hungry, they were running show of ammunition, and uh, it was just a pushover. They weren't looking for a fight. They weren't looking too much for a fight. So it was a good thing to bypass that. So I had a, I don't know, a day or two in Cherbourg. I don't even know where I stayed there, honest to God. I don't even remember that. But they made you do a duty, so they made an MP out of me. At that time, the Cherbourg port opened up, and they can unload the ships there instead of the one they built up in Omaha. And I was supposed to direct this traffic, and I got them into one heck of a mess. I do not know what the <laughs> hell I was doing. <laughs> And the lieutenant came to me, and he says, gosh, you're better off on the line. You get back over there. So I went back, and then we came to St. Lowe. Had a little bit to do with that, not too much. But they took that three times before they could get it. Then I went back, and they mustered me out. Then I went up to what they call a repo-depot camp, where all the replacements come in. And I ran into a guy up there I sort of attached myself to. He liked me, and I liked him, Tony Flossie. He was from the States. And we're in his repo depot camp, and 12 men to a tent, cold and snows. So they had a roster posted, and my name was on it for KP. I says, and Tony, he was new over there, you know, and I went through. I said, I ain't going on KP. He says, you have to go. Your name's there. I said, I ain't going. So we're sleeping in a pyramidal tent, and he says, you're going to get caught. I said, no, I ain't. So they come around like, I don't know, 4 o'clock in the morning. And I said, there's a goss here. They was in the right tent. I said, now he's over in that other tent. So he we went over there, but he wasn't there, and he went to the other tent the other side, he wasn't there. And I never did serve KP. <laughs> Tony says to me, he says, you can't go in there. I says, why not? I says, everybody here looks alike, the same uniform. They ain't gonna know me. So I went and ate whatever they had there, that powdered egg stuff. And then they put us in trucks and sent us up toward the front. I don't know how long we rode in them trucks. And I got, that's how I got into the 70th Division. They put us, we ended up in a night time in some house someplace in France. And uh, the sergeants were coming in to pick out men for their squad. The 70th Division was getting replacements every day, every day. 70th Division wasn't over there that long either. It was late coming, see. And this sergeant says, has anybody here seen combat? These boys were all from the States. And my buddy, Tony Flossie, and I didn't answer him, nobody answered him. And Tony Flossie says, he saw combat. He was in Normandy. He's, I'll take him. So Tony, he went with me. And that's how I got what they called the Bennett's Bastards. And I was in that outfit until the end of the war. It was a good outfit. It was a hard-fighting bunch of boys. Sterling Wendell was a French town overlooking the Ryan- uh, Saar River. I think we spent two or three weeks trying to take that town. We lost a lot of people. It was a hard. But some of those things were bad as Normandy. They really were. And I'd run a lot of patrols down to the river and make noise and holler, bring up the boats sometimes. I never had to cross that river until they decided to take Cherbourg or, or Sherbrooke. We'd run all kind of patrols at night, some in the daytime. I had one in the day, and we stayed in the house, and we could look across the river and, and observe what the Germans were doing, see. And we'd seen three guys over there digging a machine gun set up. I said to those guys, you know, I, I made expert in the rifle team. I said to those guys, see that guy lean on a shovel, watch him. And I shot at that shovel spade, part, you know, all three of them took off running. But we run a lot of patrols here. We run a patrol down there one night. I don't know how many guys, there must have been a whole squad, I guess. And we were spread out all along the railroad tracks, right at the river's edge. He was making all kind of noise and throwing hand grenades and was just throwing them in the river and making making a lot of noise. We wanted to find out how much firepower they would have over there and make them think we was coming. Well, they opened up with the machine guns and I was laying along the tracks and these guys were all laid out along the tracks. I was firing across the river at nothing and my thumbs. I had a pair of gloves on my dad sent me fur-lined rabbit gloves <laughs> and a damn bullet got twisted in there. So I rolled over in my back, and I could see, with those tracers flying over, I could see enough light in there to see why that thing was, one shell was caulked in there. So I strained that out and got that fixed. And Bennett was going to throw a hand grenade, and they have a wiring system for shifting the tracks. Wires come along around. He, He went to throw that hand grenade, and his hand got caught under one of those wires, and he dropped it. And he hollered, grenade. And it was right in his own men, our old squad there. I rolled over my back and I thought he hollered, it's a raid. So I was firing into the bank in the back there, you know, that grenade went off. One kid, he just jumped over top of me. I seen him going. When that grenade went off, it didn't cause nobody anything harm. It just blew the heel off of one man's boot. That's all it ever did. That was fortunate. One other time, we was on a patrol, Tony Flossie and I. I was on the right side of the street and he was on the left. And Germans opened up with a machine gun right up that street they had, you know. Tony was exposed, and I told him, get behind the steps. They had a pair of steps going up to this house, big stone steps, you know. And I says just don't ever move. Don't even move, because he was really in an open area, you know. And they kept shooting at poor Tony. They shot his canteen right off him. <laughs> his drink, you honestly God and took it right off of him. And he can see all those strings hanging down in front where it was to the belt. I was on the other side. I says, I'll go around the house and see if I can get him in the back. So I jumped in a cellar window. There was a coal bin there. Made it upstairs, and it didn't help a bit. I got outside of the uh, stone fence, and I couldn't see them. I was looking for them. I don't know what happened to Tony, but he got out of it all right. He come back, and he I think they just went out of ammunition or gave up or something, you know. But he laid there a long time. Every time he'd move, they'd shoot at him. And then we'd run these patrols, you know. And then we were supposed to cross the Saar River, and as we left Sterling Windle, it was a big hill, went down to the river, and then across the railroad. And we went down, and we got in these rubber boats, and we rowed across that river. I got across the river. I don't know, how. there was a good many boats there. I rented another concrete wall, and I crawled along that wall with the rest of the guys, and there was a big pillbox there. I was carrying a shape charge. A shape charge of 40-pound of TNT. And another guy carries a fuse. They have a 10 second fuse. So we had a rope and we run into this. As I crawled up, one guy took it. They had a X's like this with barbed wire wrapped around it to block that road off. Some kid went to move it and the doggone thing went off. It was booby trapped. So everyone was afraid to do it, but somebody did it. We got rid of that little obstacle and, and we took that shape charge, tied it on a rope, put the fuse in it and let it down. And he reached down as far as he could reach and pulled that fuse. And I slid the rope down as fast, and then we rolled away. And that thing went off. It was just unbelievable. And I crawled in into Sarbroken, and I remember laying at a corner of the street. It was dark real early in the morning, dark. I was looking down that street, and I swear to God, nobody could ever walk down that street. There were so many tracers going down through there. We took Sarbroken, and then after Sarbroken, we got into what they called the Battle of the Roar. There was another battle, and it was the industrial part of Germany. I don't know why. They always sent us to help another outfit. Somebody's in trouble over here. Go help them here over there, and ship us over there and do it. And in the Battle of the Ruhr, we'd take village after village after village, and I would run all these patrols, you know. I didn't mind patrols because I was a country boy, and uh, by God, I'd never bothered by darkness because it was dark all the time. I figured if, if I can't see them, they can't see me. But I knew how to listen for them. And we fought through the Battle of the Roar from one village after the next village. And sometimes the mayor of the village would want to give up the village. And uh, SS troopers would shoot the mayor. I don't know how they contacted him. We had a major. He was a good guy, too. He would come up in his Jeep and go to, go to the holes and check everybody out and see how that's doing. And we're in the snow now. Battle of the Bulge was starting. And he would come up there, and he'd always look around and see how that— and, and he'd, he'd, he'd try to drive his Jeep to the outpost to see where the guy was on. Well, he, he had his driver, him, and two riflemen, I think, was with him. And he'd come up over a grade, and he'd run right straight into a German tank. And this German tank took it a 50 caliber on it and fired over their heads, and they all and they took him prisoner, all except the Major. And the Major had no rifle. The other guys had to throw rifle down. It was three guys or I think, maybe four, I think three. And the Major put his hand down to unbuckle his belt, and the Germans cut him right in half with that 50, 50 caliber. And when our boys got that message back, they liked that guy. Now, he was a Jewish guy, you know, but everybody loved him. He was a good, honest, a good guy. Well, these guys on our side thought, They shot him just because he was Jewish, you know. And I'll tell you, from that time on, if there was SS troopers, they never made it. I remember going into those times, and they would give up. And the people would be hiding in these church shelters or in the bunkers, and we'd go in and we'd ask, are there any SS troopers here? No, there ain't none here. And we'd pick out, they'd pick out maybe a young fellow looked like he could be, he'd just send him out. He might be one. So they sent my dad here a couple shots. They wasn't shooting him, but the people thought they was. And pretty soon the women started, you know, because they did not want to take their boy out. That's one, and that's when they were all dressed up like women. It was street clothes they had on, different kind. Those boys never made it. They just never made it. Then we went rushed up to the Battle of the Bulge. Boy, I'll tell you, we marched so much, you can walk in your sleep, you know, digging a foxhole in that snow, I don't know how many, I guess, I never got to the main town, I just got to the Ardennes, see that Battle Bulge was, I don't know, 60 or 70 miles wide, and and it was 30 miles deep already, I'd get these replacements in, you know, they were gun-ho, you know, who's laying in the snow one night, I remember we had this kid, Harold Hicks, he was in the 70th Division. I liked Harold. He was a good guy. He was an educated guy, and he was a typewriter back at the headquarters, company headquarters, so he didn't get into too much battle. But he was still in artillery range all the time. When the Battle of the Bulge come, they took him up front and gave him a rifle, see? And I remember it very plain. And he was with another guy, and they were sleeping outside in the snow, digging a hole. They was in a foxhole. German patrol got him. They shot the guy and took Harold prisoner. Now, he was in combat for, what, one night, maybe two hours or something, three, four hours, or maybe a day, I don't know, and he got taken prisoner, and I blame that inexperience. I really do, because it. when I'd get a replacement, it seems I had a lot of them that sticking with me, and we'd be laying there, you know, and this one kid says, I never shot nobody. I said, well, they don't know that. You don't have to worry about that. Just shoot them anyway. Anyway, another kid was over, and I had another replacement. It was a night that was all white and beautiful, and it seemed like the artillery was cut back, you know. They weren't showing us so much, and the moon was shining. You can see a 1,000 shadows in the woods there and the trees, you know. He says, I don't see nothing. I see a lot of shadows because I'm supposed to rest, it. He's supposed to take guard, you know. He said, "What well, do I do?" I said, "Well, you look for the shadow that's moving and keep an eye on it." <laughs> and that's what happened over there. A lot of bad things happened
0: over the course of your time over there. What what, what scared you the most? Was it like snipers? Was it artillery? Was it artillery. Artillery scared me the
1: most. And then once in a while we get in an air raid. They send over some us, You know that that straven was bad. But uh, that didn't scare me as much as My I and them tree burst that it set off. I seen guys getting hit with wood and lumber sticking at them. You know, it it was really bad. It was really super bad. And then when the Germans came through, I got up to run. My buddy was there with me. I couldn't run. My feet were so damn cold. I couldn't make it. I crawled under a tank. It was blowed out. And Tony, he pushed me, covered me up with snow. And he says, I'll be back tomorrow and get you out. And I said, OK. So I laid under that tank, and I can still hear the Germans going by. And I took my shoes off. They tell you not to do that, but I did. And I kept rubbing my feet and rubbing my feet and rubbing my feet. At least I was out of the wind. I didn't get in the cold wind there. I didn't think anybody would ever come and see me again. Tony came back. He said, clear it out now. Come on, we can get out of here. So I got back, and I got back with the group. One time I ran into a patrol and the Germans were drunk or something. They was throwing hand grenades like oh, those potato mashers and we were throwing ours at them. And I think both sides were drunk. I really do. And I didn't get involved in that because I think that booze caused a lot of trouble. Anyway, we thought through that battle of the balls, you know, that was, was hell too. A lot of cold weather, you know. The tree burst and a lot of patrols. I seen guys just curl up like a fetal position and start shaking. You know, I was never really scared to death until it was over. And that's when the shock would set in. And, you know, those infantry boys that I was with, especially in a brigade, they never never got passes. They never got a lot of advantages that the rear echelon had, you know. But we'd march through town and and, and from Sicily to town to village to village to clear every one of them out, all through the battle to Aurora, a big place. And these guys... Some of them would be reciting a, I walk through the valley of death and I will fear no evil, you know. Some of them would sing some kind of songs. And some of them was cussing out the Germans. And one guy, he was, he was a poem writer. He'd always write some kind of poems. And I can remember the one that he wrote It stuck with me forever. I never, never forgot it. And it went like we marched through towns that fairly reek with germs and dirt and mud so deep. Off in the distance I hear the cannons roar. As if to say you'll be back no more. And my rifle hand is cold and numb. And in my palms red rivers run. And off in the distance the cannons roar. As if to say, you'll be back no more. You know, we fought, I think maybe, I'd say a good year. I can remember having one shower. They would leapfrog, we'd drop back and they'd take over. Then we'd come up and they'd drop back. When they'd drop back, sometimes I'd get a shower. They had like an 18-wheeler come in and you walk in with like a car wash. You walk through this thing and washed up and get gets soaked and you got the other side bare ass naked in the cold weather and you were done when it washed it off, you know, and you go through the line and you pick out the clothes that was laying there that they washed. If you find some that fit, you put it on. I remember taking German coats off. I'd tell you, they had good coats and I'd take their coats off and put in a foxhole and cover up with that. The guys used to condemn me for that. He said, boy, if you ever see, the, if the Germans ever get you, they'll sure as hell shoot you. I said, well, they'll have to get me. And then when I got home, all you do is think about that for the longest time. You know, when I was over there, though, I seen a lot of guys saying their prayers and saying a rosary and all that, but I never did any of that. My way of prayer and I just talked to God like I'd talk to anybody, like I was talking to a friend. I remember we crossed, went into Sarbrook we under the railroad tracks, and up the other side, a big line of steps on the right and a big line of steps on the left. Then all the railroad tracks we had to cross there, start broken. And we'd put down a lot of covering fire, and they'd run across those tracks, two or three guys at a time. We'd shoot at windows or doors or anything, you know, when my turn would come. And I would say, Lord, you got to give me some good legs in these things because I'm going to do some running, and I need some help. And that's the way I'd talk to the Lord. And I went over there and I seen a guy laying on the tracks. And I went to and picked, and I was going to take his hand grenades off him. And I starts pulling his hand grenades off, and he looks at me and he says, What the blankety blank are you doing? I said, Oh, I thought you was hit. He says, I just tripped. <laughs> or he cussed me out. Because <laughs> I figured I'd need him when I got over there. And stuff like that just went on and on, you know. What's the first thing
0: you did when you got home?
1: Went to work. They shipped me back at, on a Liberty ship, you know. And I got on that ship, and I had three guys to a bed, bunk, you know. And uh, I didn't like that situation. It, it was your turn to sleep when you didn't want to sleep, see? Right. So they had a like stack of uh, lifeboats piled right in the middle of that boat, right up the center, you know. I looked up there, and I figured, by God, I'm going up there. Took some blankets, went up there, and they were like uh, mush bottom or, you know, pretty soft. Another guy went with me, and I laid there at night and watched that moon swinging back and forth. You know, all seven days it took me to get home. Then I got Norfolk, Virginia is where I come in. We got off the ship, didn't even get a donut, nothing at all. Put us a, a camp up there, I don't know what it was. it was. Camp Lucky Strike, I think it was. And then they sent me a furlough home, and I had my papers cut to go to fight the Japs. And uh, I went home, you know, had my furlough over with, and I just stuffed all the stuff in my duffel bag. Well, when I come home, I got a, a car to ride me partway. I took a train the rest of the way into Pittsburgh. From there, I called up my dad. I called up home, and I know, it was real early in the morning. It was dark. My mother answered the phone, and I didn't want to shock her or anything. I said, I want to speak to Eddie Goss she got him on the phone. I says, hey, Pap, this is Warren. He says, where are you at? I said, I'm down here at the train station. He says, no, you ain't. Says, My Warren's over there in France. I said, no, I'm not, Pap. I'm home now. He says, this really you? I said, yep, it's me. I'll be right down, he says. And across from the train station, there was a white tower over there. So I went to White turn had a cup of coffee, and there was other guys there, but I don't know how many, they were waiting for something, too. I went to pay them, and there was a lady in there. She was gone walking down the street. We went to pay for the- He says, nope, that lady paid for it all. First thing I got, my dad came. He was working to Pittsburgh out to our advertising company, and he drove down, they parked right in the middle of the street, you know, that's where I met my dad. We had a chicken farm is what we had. He went home. And my mom was feeding the chickens. She didn't even know that I was around, you know. And that's when I gave her a big hug. Because if my mother would see that picture today, I'm gonna
0: kill you. <laughs> I bet she was over the moon to see you.
1: Yeah, she, she had it all. her hair put up all the time in rags, you know how they used to do that. She was a country woman, a good person. And then after that, I, I had to go back to camp. I packed up my uh, belongings that I had to take back. And I was walking up Scott Avenue. I didn't even say goodbye to him. I just walked up Scott Avenue, and I was crying like a baby because I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to fight no more. And I knew if I had to go over and fight the Japs, I never, could never do that twice, you know. I got back to camp for some reason. I don't know why, and they gave me another weekend pass, and I jumped the train and went back home or something. And that's when they dropped the bomb. And I never had to go back. I never had to go over there. When we did, did come back, though, you know, they started giving us training again to go fight the Japs. And we were in a filtration course, you know. You crawl under the wires in that fence, you know. Well, we knew all about that by that time. And we'd pull the wires apart and they couldn't blow up their little, <laughs> little hickeys. Then we was on a firing range shooting at the targets. And they had a shanty down there where some guy in that shanty, you could see the smoke coming out, and we'd talk and say, Let's blow that stack off of that seat. And everyone's shooting and shooting, and nobody hit the targets. They could not control those guys, I'm telling you. Then they had a tank coming down a hill. This thing would come down a hill, you know, rolling like that. And the sergeants hollering, Stop that tank. So the guys all run over and upset it, because it was made out of cardboard See. <laughs> That's what they did. They could not control those boys. And then I can remember my mother, when I got home, she'd say to my sister, she had five girls and three boys. She'd say, Annabelle, you go play some hymns. That'll calm more down. She says, I don't know, but that's what she did. I remember her telling me
0: that. What happened to your buddy Tony that was with you the most of the time? He got discharged. He stayed
1: there for occupation because I had so damn many points. They got rid of me right away. But he stayed over there, and he was playing basketball, he told me. And then the next time I seen Tony, he was uh, worked for some Kroger company running a store down along the Mississippi River. He lived, I see him in Army reunions. And when I, when I walked in one time and I sat down beside him, we yeah. looked at each other and just gave each other a big hug. You stayed in touch all these years? Oh, yeah, he's dead now, and most everybody's dead now most all of them's gone i used to go to the 70th army reunion and the brigades army reunion but i never went to the fourth because i never did any service with them to speak of. i don't know why i was in so many i was either damn
0: good or no good i don't know which it was
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well thank you so much for sharing i got i got one more question for you um the last couple of weeks has been a lot of stuff on the news and you being a, a d-day veteran how does it make you feel When you turn on the news and you see americans walking down the streets carrying nazi flags over their shoulders oh boy i don't know how to explain it i think they should just promptly be
1: deported you know this freedom of ours is going to kill us everything upsets me anymore my wife gets upset worse than i do you know and i don't like them tearing down the confederate monuments you know that's our history and and uh, i i don't think we should be ashamed of our history I don't know, the freedom of our country is slowly eroding away. You know, when I came back, I started my own business. and It was hard to do, but we did it. I had a development business and was building houses. Because I didn't have no education. I didn't know how to even... When i go home, i try to get a job, and I couldn't get a job because I didn't know how to fill out an application. When I'd apply, I was going to the bread companies in places around Pittsburgh, and they'd give me an application to fill out. And I'd say, well, I'm in a hurry, and I'll fill it out and bring it back. So I'd get my sister to do it or something. By the time I took it back, why they didn't, uh, they knew I was, you know. And I think that's why I got stuck in the infantry, because everybody with an education had a pretty good job. You know, of all the millions and millions of men that's that's in the Army, there's only about 7% on the front lines. It takes a lot of people to supply them.
0: You recently graduated high school, is that correct? You got your... uh, Yeah. A few months ago, you got your diploma. Yeah, the honorary diploma.
1: I'll tell you how that happened. I get down to Heinz History Center, and and the school kids come in there, and I've been doing it for a good while. And I also go to the schools. And these kids come in, and I talk a little bit about the war, and I, I have a layout that I lay out. I got the M1, the hand grenades, my trench knife, the bayonets, you know. I got a German cross that the women get. I think this was in Langdon, Germany, I'm not sure. But I was on a patrol when we'd take this town, and we'd take it wasn't actually a patrol we were taking in town. She was pushing this baby buggy, you know, and we, what we would do was raid the houses for guns and knives. They did want no ammunition, and I went through the baby buggy, had a little baby in it, no, no guns in there. And she had this cross hanging around her neck, signed by Adolf Hitler. I took it and I ripped it off her and kept it. And that was a cross for having children for the fewer, the master race he was building. They had uh, rooms over there, all these big tables laid on just covered with babies. And these German women were going through these like you'd, like we'd separate our chickens. This is a good chicken, throw throw keep it and throw the bad ones away. And they were doing that with the babies over there. If it had one mark on it, it was out. I'll tell you, in that damn place over there, I didn't want to see one brick stuck to another. I really didn't. And most of the guys that was in there as long as I was, in combat as long as I was, feel the same way. And they're the ones that got shipped out real fast because they'd never make an occupation force out of them, you know. But that's the way it was.
0: There was one more story I wanted you to tell. Uh, It's when you were a real young boy and you had a teacher, I think it was uh, Old Lady Kelly. Yeah, with a gum band belly, that's, answer. that's exactly right. <laughs> and uh, what did, did you like? let some chickens go in the classroom, something like that? Well, that was, uh, that was a, I was a little older then. Miss Kelly was a first grade teacher,
1: and I couldn't put words together. And I had a hard time spelling cat. And she would take that roller and beat my hand, C-A-T, you know. Every day I got it for some reason. In fact, I fought first grade. And that's when the first time I ever played hooky. First grade. I figured I ain't taking this. <laughs> and I'd go and sit in the woods and go home, and there's things to do, and, and uh, mom wouldn't even know I was there. Then, when I got older, I got to working and I made money for them. You know, I was getting quarters, nickels, and dimes. My mother used it all during the Depression. It was tough times. Then, this chicken deal, uh, they had a teacher up there, Mr. Gates. And he says, hey, Warren, can you bring me in a chicken? I says, yeah. Well, I peddled papers out. I was up every morning at 4 o'clock, peddled that Post-Gazette. Then in the evenings, I peddled the Sun Telegraph and Press. He wanted a chicken, see, so I went up the chicken coop that morning, put him in my paper bag, got my bicycle off. I went, delivered all those papers, and then I delivered milk, too. When I get the paper right down, I get on a Andy's milk truck, and I'd run milk for him. And I had the chicken hanging in the milk truck. He had dropped me off at school. In fact, he even wrote me excuses. I <laughs> <laughs> walked into school, there and I was always late for school, always late, and all the kids were standing there. I pledged allegiance to the flag, and I opened the door, and I says, hey, Mr. Gates, here's your chicken, <laughs> and I throw it <laughs> in the room, see? <laughs> and uh, that chicken was screaming, the kids were screaming and hollering, you know? And I run down the hall, and he run after me, and I, didn't, I just took that day off, too. <laughs> Another time I was in, in a classroom, and they, they had what they called a study hall. I didn't know how to do that either. Brogy, I think his name was. I says, Mr. Brogy, I don't want to take no study hall. Can I do something else? He says, Goss, I don't care if you take arsenic. <laughs> <laughs> I says, okay, I'll take the day off. I walked out of the room and left. <laughs> I I don't know, and, you know, my third grade education didn't go too far. It took me to the eighth grade to get it to. (laughs) 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 But you know what? I made money from my mother. If you realize what ten cents would buy, a loaf of bread, a pond of bologna, a gallon of gas, that's what it would buy, and you couldn't get the dime, though. And I was out peddling papers for a quarter of a cent. I finally got up to a penny. We had to sell four papers to make a penny. And I did that every morning and every night. And I, the, the payoff to that thing was when you went around to collect, they'd give you little tips. And I took all that money home and gave it to my mother. And I, then we got older, kids started getting help with Mama by paying her a, a weekly pay if they got a job, you know. And she told me, she says, Warren, you're the only boy that paid me the money and never asked for it back. That's what happened there, but she was a good woman, boy, and she worked. My God, people today don't know what it's like.
0: It rubbed off on you. As
1: as far as, it, as the diploma goes, you know, when I was in uh, Heinz History Center, Schiller High School, see, that's I was involved in De Haven School. That was the only school Schiller had. Well, they had little schools around, but De Haven's is one I went to, and I went to. Uh, Heinz History Center, and the, the school buses come in. The kids sign up for a class to learn this scene. So I take all my stuff and show it to them and give them a talking to. There's about four guys, one from the Air Corps, and I go down to the infantry, and there's one from uh, Korea, and then there's home people that, that go tell what it's like at a home, you know. So uh, I talk to these kids, then they give them a final speech when it's are done. And I'll tell you what I tell them. The whole group of them, you know. Even at uh, Seneca Valley I have the auditorium full of kids and I tell them you guys like to get a surprise don't you like a gift I said I like a gift do you like a gift they say, yeah they say yeah I said well, you have an opportunity here to hear, get the best gift of your life and you got to give it to yourself I says you get these teachers and you listen to what they say and get your nose in the books I says you think these teachers got it easy I says I live with two of them my two daughters were teachers. I said, I know what those teachers do. I said, they come home, they're on their computer while you guys are playing little games. They're trying to figure out who flunked what test and how to improve that child. I said, and then they're planning the lessons for the next day. I said, they're on that, they're they're working at home, cleaning up till twelve o'clock at night while you people are playing games. Said, you listen to your teacher every year. I would tell them that, you know. I said, the best gift you'll ever get in your life, and you can't exist. I said, if you want to live a life like I did, I just like living a lie. If you got to live a lie, it ain't no fun. I said, you, I can't tell people I never had an education. But by God, I knew how to work. I was a good worker. Then the teachers down there, you got to see the letters I got from that. Kids, oh my God, are they encouraging. And I saved them all, too. I got about, I got letters from California to New York, all across the United States. I got them from England, I got them from Austria, I got them from Canada. People wanting to know about the war and send me, and the only thing I do is send them some paper clippings and stuff, you know. I answer everyone too. But that's what I did, and that's what I do now. You know, I don't mind it. And when I get those letters, it sort of tells me that these kids would encourage me, what I tell them, you know, and how important an education is. Because today you can't live without it.
0: Right. Warren, you're a real hero. Thanks so much for coming and sitting down with us. You're welcome. Got a mountain of respect for you. Really good conversation. This is going to turn out really well. I, 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 I don't know if it will. I
1: hope it does.
0: <laughs> it will. There's a lot of young guys that listen to this. A lot of young, young Afghan and Iraq vets listen to this.
1: I think there's a lot of things I'll think about that I didn't tell you. You know, I lay in bed, I think of this crap. Every damn night I do this, every night. I remember the dreams I had. You know, when I got home, different kind of dreams. I was laying at the bottom of this hill where there's a wee little ball up there and it's coming down, it's rolling down, it's got me pinned down. If I can move one leg or one foot or a finger, I can get out of here, you know, and it just gets in it, pressure, pressure comes and I get something moving, I move. And another one, I was running and running and running. I'm running back into the water because I think the Germans are after me. And the water's coming up and up and up, and I keep running and running. And when I get up to here, I wake up. It went on
0: for years. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or your favorite podcasting app.